Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, award-winning author, poet, memoirist, musician, erstwhile stand-up and now apparently niche podcaster of moderate renown. This is a podcast about writing, but more than that, it's a podcast about stories and the people who love them. If you can hear me now, congratulations, you've passed our stringent entry requirements and are now officially one of the gang. Today's episode is on a topic a few of you have requested from me, namely things you can do that aren't writing that will improve your writing and help you do more of it. Some practices, some habits, some little life hacks as contemporary parlance would have it that will serve your writing, your creativity, whether you're doing it to relax and learn about yourself or if you're a full-time professional who needs to produce a certain volume of work at a certain standard. Now, Big caveat ahoy. Before I go any further, I'm going to whop out a massive disclaimer and slap it down on the table between us. I am very aware that in pivoting away from uh, specific technical notes on grammatical choices on your first page into broad behavioural advice, I'm but one tooth-whiting treatment away from going full lifestyle guru, offering super premium branded writing retreats in the Dordogne and uh, buying some of those little perspex stands so I can display my latest fiction writing manual at speaking engagements. I am not a clinical therapist and more to the point, I'm not your clinical therapist. I'm not a physician. I'm not a lifestyle coach. I'm not a trained nutritionist. I don't have a degree in sports science. And to be fair, I'm still relatively new new to being an author. I have three published books under my belt and I've been writing and performing poetry for over a decade, but I am still learning. And I've got a severe anxiety disorder, right? Like I manage mental health issues every day. I am definitely in many ways, um, I was going to say subnormal, but that's actually not fair, just abnormal. So what I'm offering you here today are not ex-cathedra pronouncements on the right way to do things. I don't believe such one-size-fit-all solutions exist. That's part of the fun and wonder of us being alive and there being so many of us, right? You are going on your own journey, forging your own path. By definition, the story of you has not been done before. That's why you're so incredibly great and valuable. You know, even when you make mistakes, even when it seems like things have gone wrong, that is part of what a story requires, is a bit of jeopardy, some dragons to be fought and uh, either slain or made friends with. But as human beings, more unites us than divides us. That's something I fundamentally believe. And uh, you and I, we're fellow travellers. We can both share knowledge with each other of things that have helped us along the way. I can say, look, when I do these behaviours, more often than not, these good results seem to happen. We can identify stuff that's worked for us and we can pass that data point on to others who can use their own discernment, obviously, and they can compare it to other data points they've received from other people and then they can make a decision whether to act upon it. So what I'm saying is always check with your doctor if you're going to make any lifestyle changes that may be complicated by ongoing conditions. Please be safe, brave warrior. And look, you may be in a very different place to me right now. Uh, I have a 21-month-old daughter who gets up at the crack of dawn and needs me every day. So I can't do any of those lifestyle tips that you hear so often that involve getting up before everyone else and being productive in your first hour and doing a big uh, meditate in a silent house and doing all this prep. Because if I got up before Suki, I would not go to bed. So these are just things that have worked for me leading a, a busy and often disorganised lifestyle. In some cases, they've worked very, very well. But I want to under-promise and over-deliver on this episode. If I proselytise and bang the desk and say, this thing will change your life, and it doesn't, you'll feel discouraged and you'll lose trust in my judgement. You know, the things that I've uh, 
felt most discouraged by have been things that I've promised myself. I've done a couple of times and I've gone, oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I ask too much of them. And then when they don't work, I feel super downhearted because they haven't got a perfect hit rate. I think it's so important to to manage your expectations and to just, if they can make things 10% better and they're reasonably easy, then 10% better is pretty freaking amazing. But none of them are cure-alls. What I'm saying is these things have been helpful for my writing and my life in general. I've, I've tried to boil them down to their core, easiest, actionable components because I think simple changes are, well, I mean, this is not very controversial, but I think they're the easiest the easiest to implement and field test, right? Because if I give you some huge lifetime assignment, like, okay, you, you're going to join a gym, you're going to be getting up at 5am every day, Monday is legs day, Tuesday's abs and arms, you're going to be doing some drop sets, etc, etc. You might very well believe me that following my instructions would have a positive and transformative effect on your state of mind and your ability to write. But you're not going to fucking do it, are you? Who would? It's nonsense. Everyone knows that those things would be good, but it's not very easy to do them. So they assume that you've solved the most difficult part of the problem. So so these are all small things, right? They're mostly free or either that or, or negligibly cheap. And, and you can road test them the moment you're done listening to this podcast. Because the one thing I've discovered is like one sometimes the simplest solutions, the things so small that for ages I thought, well, there's no point trying that because that's not going to have an impact. They've made a huge difference. I think a lot of times when I've been looking at my life and thinking about changing stuff, it, it's the things that have actually, in hindsight, had the biggest effect have been all about picking my angle. Give me a big enough lever and a solid place to stand and I will lift the world. That was um, that was Hannibal from the A-Team, by the way, in the episode where he dismantles the bunk in his jail cell and uses it to jack up the bars and escape. I love it when a plan comes together. Before I dive into the big seven, just to remind you, at the moment, this podcast is supported by you, the listener. If you like what I do here, if you get value out of it and you want to see more of it in the world, the first thing you can do, if you haven't already, is buy a copy of my novel, The Honours. I'm a full-time author. Writing is what I do. That's how I know what to say when I'm talking about writing, right? If you order my book, I get a couple of quid and you get a story of rich period suspense and intrigue that I think you'll really dig. And you're going to be supporting the career of your fellow writer. If you want to chuck the show a few bucks direct, of course, you can do so through my coffee page. It's like Patreon, but uh, for one shot donations rather than putting you on this like fixed payment schedule. Thank you so much to all of you who've chipped in so far. It's all added up to make a huge difference. Um, the only reason I'm speaking to you now is because the gifts of listeners like you have allowed me to pay off this year's hosting costs on SoundCloud and the costs for migrating my website onto a server that doesn't have outages every couple of weeks like it was a few months ago. So look, if you want to throw anything my way, even if it's just a few bucks, it all adds up and I really appreciate it. But I absolutely don't expect it and don't feel like I'm saying this like if you're listening to this podcast you should you you don't have to it's just if you can it does make a difference finally if you want non-financial ways to help me out because ultimately I want this show to be available to everyone because so much creative writing help is behind huge paywalls and costs a bomb so it's only available to uh well-off middle-class people please share this show on social media on your blog tell your friends in meet space and please subscribe on soundcloud and iTunes and drop us a review and, and, and review my books on Amazon if you like them. All of that helps a bunch. Right, that's it. That's the pitch. Thank you very much. Let's get into it. Seven things that will help you write more that are not writing. Thing one, hit the showers. You're going to hate me for this. You're going to fucking hate me for this. I promise you. I take cold showers daily. 
Now, I'm going to tell you why it's a brilliant idea in the face of every poor of your rational being screaming warnings to the contrary and thinking I've gone potty. In Natalie Goldberg's creative writing classic, Writing Down the Bones, which I really recommend you read if you haven't already. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, She writes about talking to her teacher, Katagiri Roshi, about her loneliness after separating from her husband. She asks, Roshi, will I get used to loneliness? No. You don't get used to it. I take a cold shower every morning and every morning it shocks me, but I continue to stand up in the shower. Loneliness always has a bite, but learn to stand up in it and not be tossed away. So alarm bells may be ringing in your head at this point. You may be thinking, egads, Tim, you're quoting, approvingly quoting Zen masters. Are you asking me to stand in the freezing water every morning for the sake of a twee metaphor? Um... Yeah, sort of. I mean, here's what you're going to do, right? One week of daily cold showers. When you first start, you're going to have a normal, lovely hot shower. Then at the end, you're going to step out or turn the shower head away and crank it right down to the coldest it will go. When you're ready, you step under the spray. Your aim in the initial go, the initial few, is to last for one minute of cold water. You can set a timer on your phone if you like with an alarm. Or you can just count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, up to you. And don't just let the shower hit your knees or one place. Get your head under, get your hair wet, make it hit your scalp, make it hit you in the small of the back, lift your arms so it gets your armpits. Keep turning around so you're not just letting it hit one part of you. It's that's basically the idea. Get get your back over your legs, your wrists. I'm not going to name all the parts of the body. Um, The first time I did it, I spent about five or six minutes psyching myself up to go under the cold shower. Then I stepped in and I screamed. I shrieked like a dowager in a cosy interbellum murder mystery happening upon the Lord of the Manor's corpse. It was so much more horrible than I'd expected. Actually physically painful. So let me be absolutely honest and clear about that. It is grim. But then I stepped out afterwards and and I couldn't stop laughing. It was such a a funny, silly experience because I didn't need to do it. Right. I didn't need to do it. There was no there was no there's nothing was making me do it. I chose to do it. And in the end, it was only just a bit of cold water. It didn't hurt me. And I spent all that time feeling worried about it. And then I made a silly noise. And and since then, right, I've been building up my tolerance. I went from one minute to 90 seconds to two minutes to three minutes. Then I started Uh, skipping the hot part altogether so just stepping straight into cold water I thought that might be easier actually at first without that contrast from hot to cold but it is really not going straight from being dry to freezing water oh god it's so cold but then the other day the strangest thing happened I I stepped into the cold shower and and I was fine started moving around and raising my arms, trying to make myself shiver, you know, get it right in between my shoulder blades. And and I could take it. It didn't make me flinch. I, I stood under a blast of freezing cold water for about six minutes just to check if I could. And yeah, it was easy. So I found plenty of benefits from cold showers, greater alertness, massively reduced anxiety. Uh, seriously, I mean, it does. It's, it's not Uh, completely foolproof I did have a big anxiety panic attack this morning that is the only one I've had this month though and various things have contributed to that but um seriously for the most part my anxiety has been reduced to the point where uh last week uh don't worry I'm fine everyone was fine but a double-decker bus ran a red light in Norwich and nearly t-boned me as I was driving towards the station I was in my car and and as it blasted its horn I did take evasive action but I just thought to myself I oh oh 
He's not driving very well. Had no startle response, no elevated heart rate, no pounding adrenaline, a worrying absence of terror, in, in fact. This is from someone who's had panic attacks because a jar of capers fell out of the fridge. And not that I'm vain, but it's good, been good for my skin and hair, and I'm left with this tingly glow all over my body and a deep sense of well-being every time I step out. I sleep better. A cold shower just before bed lowers my body temperature, and I'm out like a light. But here's the main reason it's been good for my writing. It's no great secret that I've struggled very, very, very badly with procrastination. Often severe, debilitating procrastination. It's made me miserable. It's made me feel worthless. It's it's taken up days and days and weeks of my life. It's it's made me believe deep in my heart that I'll never write again. In fact, you know, like the first time I gave up writing for 10 years out of fear and depression and anxiety and feeling that I wasn't worth it and I shouldn't write. Stepping into a cold shower is a decision to do something not immediately pleasurable, something that may be an even initially unpleasant and may seem almost kind of foolish and irrational, but something crucially that offers a at least small mid to long term gain, right? When I used to start, I, I used to stand outside the shower cubicle for two, three minutes sort of shifting my weight from foot to foot, working up the courage to get cold. And you know what? Delaying never made that water the slightest smidge warmer, not one degree warmer. It didn't make it any easier at all. I didn't magically transform into a walrus in the interim. It was just all wasted time full of stressful anticipation. The only thing, the only thing that reduced that anxiety, that reduced the pain and discomfort that I went through, it's fucking stepping into the shower and getting on with it. And and now I just get naked, I switch the shower on, and I step in. Some days I still hesitate, you know, I'm not perfect, but I notice myself hesitating now, and I, and I choose to ignore it. Whether I'm in the mood for having a cold shower, I'm really excited about it, it's going to make me feel great, or not really isn't any of my business, you know? What does it matter if I like this thing or dislike it? Step into the shower. I have never, ever, ever felt worse after a cold shower. And this is where it intersects with, you know, doing those 10-minute free writes that you may have heard me bang on about in the Couch to 80K writing boot camp if you've listened to it. But I've never, ever regretted it after I step out. I'm always so thankful I've done it. The impulse that you fight when you hesitate outside a cold shower is the same force that keeps you from writing the shit that's going to change your heart that's going to uncover the stories you need to write that's going to train you to be a better sharper more emotionally present writer so if you're feeling stuck or procrastinating or fearful you know normally on the boot camp i said if you're feeling those things 10 minute free write bam do it don't give those voices those anxieties that self-criticism that that lacerating or just a delaying finagling flinchy feeling inside don't give those voices one single minute more of your time do the free write write wild scandalous horse shit the alarm rings after 10 minutes you're done you did some training you got words down it wasn't a test it was uh, an opportunity to build strength and you turned up quality of product in those situations does not matter quality is showing up you can't excel in taking a cold shower it's not a fucking catwalk no one's watching theoretically you it, it's not something you can do well or badly except turn up you just turn up and you do it you step in and you bear witness if there's pain today there's pain if there's energy there's energy 
And if you don't have a shower, but you do have a bath, you could do it in a bath. It's going to be a little bit more hardcore because you're going to essentially have to submerge yourself. But you can do that as well. Look, this is medicine for your writing practice. And yes, it is a silly metaphor. But so is so much of what we think about life. Now, I do realise that this is also something that when I Google searched it, after I'd started trying it, it turns out it's very popular in kind of douche bro entrepreneurial circles. Uh, I'm not into any of that. You know, I'm, I hope you know I'm smarter than that and a little bit more self-effacing. It is a very silly thing. But I'm asking you, if it sounds at all like something that would be useful for you, maybe try it for seven days and see how you get on with it. Thing two, get a wall calendar. So this is much less painful and quasi-mystic, zenish nonsense than thing one, right? This is just meat and potatoes, good, practical working. I, I mentioned this as well on the uh, on the boot camp, but get yourself a cheap wall calendar. My one this year is guinea pigs. There's three of them staring at me right now, eating a slice of watermelon together. Get a wall calendar and stick it to your wall wherever you work. Find a space that's yours, somewhere you can display it. Phone apps don't count. Google Calendar doesn't count. I'm talking a physical calendar. You'll need a pen as well. Either stick it to the wall with a splodge of blue tack, or you could tie it to the calendar with a bit of string and some sticky tape. Uh, be careful with blue tack, by the way, though. I've got um, I've got mine stuck to the wall with a bit of blue tack, and when I took it off the other day, it took a huge chunk of plaster with it because I'd been a little bit too enthusiastic. So watch yourself. Right, brilliant. Now, now this calendar, by the way, is not for planning stuff in the future. It's not about you using it to give yourself homework or, or challenges or plot out days or in any way constrain your future self. This is this is not about setting up arduous goals that you will do some of. It's nothing to do with that. This is simply for recording when you do cool shit. It's all in the past tense. So every day you do at least 10 minutes of writing. You can mark that day's box with a little symbol. Could be a tick, a cross, a little W, whatever. Your only aim is to get as many of those W's as possible when you look back over the month. If you do a particularly long session, say a couple of hours, you could always signify that with a special mark like an asterisk or something. But you don't have to. That's not the point. The point is to just get a W in that day's box. All we're looking to do is record and reinforce a good thing what you did, right? Because it's easy to forget or dismiss all the little moments of effort, the small nudges, the micro sessions, the little... The little wins, those little victories, those little triumphs that collectively can transform your writing practice and, yes, your life. And in fact, fuck big goals in, entirely because, you know, changing your life is, is such a nebulous big thing that it can be a bit overwhelming. Those little seven minute scribbles while you're waiting for your pizza to cook, those funny lists of made up book titles, every moment where you interrupt your life and your routine and your automatic way of doing things and go, ah, I remember I'm going to write and you sit and you write something. Each one of those in itself will change the tone of your day. It will change the pattern of your thoughts. I'm talking to free write. You can just do a free write. You have no subject matter. If you can't think of anything, you keep the pen moving for the time. If you want to write, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, that's fine. If you just want to write in the voice of a character, if you want to write an angry rant to someone else, that's all fine. But you're choosing if you do it for three minutes, if you do it for one minute, 
doesn't matter. Every time you do that, it will change the tone of your day. It will alter your trajectory. It will change the pattern of your thoughts. I've never, ever felt worse after opening my notebook and adding to it, no matter how short the session. A wall calendar helps remind you that you can choose to self-interrupt, which sounds a little bit like masturbation, uh, but don't worry, you've got the cold showers for that. But you can choose to self-interrupt. You can choose to write, to seize control of your own narrative at any point. And I, I know when you're feeling low that that can feel like arduous. It can feel a bit like victim blaming. You know, someone saying, you can seize control of your narrative. And you go, no, I'm. please stop it. Just stop pushing me. I, I know how that feels. And, 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 and trust me when I say you don't have to do this. But I'm saying maybe you could try. You might be pleasantly surprised. But if you don't or it doesn't work for you, that's not a failure. That's not a personal failing. So don't turn this into a rod for your own back. There's no need to because it really isn't. But I think that's why the calendar needs to be on there on the wall. So you can see it and you build up this little garden of ink crosses. And even if there's, you know, three on there for the month, you look back and you go, oh, yeah, because you you won't remember that you did three sessions. You'd think you didn't do any. But you look back and inevitably you look at the calendar for that month and you realise you've done more sessions than you thought. And, and every single one represents an occasion when you turned up and you did the work, knowing how hard it can feel for you, how scary, how ridiculous. And you fucking did it anyway, again and again. I don't just use the calendar for writing. I use it with all the practices I want more of in my life. It's not for punishment. I don't set targets. I don't beat myself up if it ends up blank. I just record and reward skillful behaviour when it happens. And so far, whatever I start recording, I've ended up doing more of. It's as simple as that. The one thing I note down which breaks this rule is panic attacks. I, I note them down even though they are clearly not a behaviour that I'm trying to encourage. I, I, I suffer, I've suffered from severe debilitating panic attacks for years now and I just wanted to see whether the other life changes I've been making had any effect on my panic attacks frequency. So like today I wrote PA on uh, my calendar to record that today I had a panic attack and, and, and yeah sure enough um, that's the only panic attack I've had this month. Whereas before I was having as many as three a day uh, in kind of week-long clusters and they've gone massively down. But if I didn't have that, I wouldn't, I would have written that down and I would have looked and I wouldn't, if I didn't write it down, I would have assumed, oh, I'm having panic attacks all the time. I would have, it feels like it when you're having them. Oh, I'm always anxious. Actually, looking back, nope, most of this month I've been pretty calm. This is the only one. And it was a smasher. I had a couple. It was grim and I feel awful about them and they made me feel low and set back. But I can look and I can see, look, that's it for the month. And it allows me to have some kind of rash. So it works with bad things that you're trying to reduce and it works with good things as well because they allow you to have this objective measure. As long as you're honest about what you write down, they give you an objective measure of stuff you want to avoid. And, you know, it just lets you see trends. It lets me see the climate of my anxiety rather than the weather, if you will. If there's a behavioural response you'd like to see less of in your life, maybe you can use the calendar for that too. Thing three, make a could-do list. So uh, books on procrastination, and believe me, I, I've read a metric shit ton, will recommend all sorts of complicated and time-consuming methods for getting organised and prioritising tasks. Grids, weekly planners long question and answer journals where you interrogate yourself, all of which involve uh, lengthy and not intrinsically fun tasks, which you have to find time for and self-motivate to do. But you are a procrastinator, right? Finding 
things hard and finding it hard to make time for things that aren't intrinsically fun is my whole fucking problem. So here's a quick and dirty hack that's worked for me. Just grab a piece of paper and write a list in no particular order of everything in your in-tray, all the tasks that need to be done or that you want to get done. So booking car for MOT, reply to Dave's email, reply to Rita's email, wipe down kitchen services, do 50 sit-ups, buy sponge scourers, write 500 words of work in progress, etc. Whatever is relevant to you. Obviously, don't write down those if you don't know anyone called Rita. So you just brainstorm the stuff you need to do. You just get it all out and you just write it all down, dump it in, you know, simple sentences on a scrap piece of paper. Then once you've finished, you pick one thing off the list, preferably the easiest, shortest one, one you can do right there and then, and you do it. So you go, okay, I'll wipe down the kitchen surfaces. You go downstairs, 10 minutes, wiping them all down. Done. Once you've finished, you put a line through that thing and then you get on with doing whatever the fuck you like. That's it. That's the tip. I was amazed at how great this felt, right? So so after that, you don't need to, you can ignore the list almost. It, it's kind of like dumping all the data that's been buffering in your head and putting it down on a piece of paper and your brain goes, Ugh, I can forget this now because they've, they, you know, they've done studies on, you know, the part of the brain that, you know, waiters use to hold multiple orders in in their head and how that gets dumped when they get to the kitchen and say it that seconds afterwards they can't remember a single thing about any of those orders that it's let go and that while it's being held that causes a certain amount of stress a certain amount of arousal of your autonomic nervous system a certain amount of effort is going in to holding those things in your head when you write the stuff down even if you fucking chuck that piece of paper away, a huge mental load evaporates. It's just, it just does. I think part of it is that everything you're not doing from that point on also becomes a choice, right? You know what there is to do, like explicitly know what there is to do. And if you look at the list and you think, you know what, I don't want to do any of that. Fantastic. Great. You're making a conscious choice. You're taking back your sovereignty. It's not that you forgot. It's not that you meant to and then you accidentally went on Facebook and lost track of time. You know how horrible that feels. You are taking your control back, right? You're choosing not to do that thing because you value something else more. Even if that thing you value value more is just sitting down and eating some biscuits and watching TV. Perfect. You're allowed to do that. It's your life. Also, by picking one thing on the list and getting it done before you just go into doing whatever, you give yourself an easy win. And an important win. It's good to remind yourself you can do that. You can, And you notice yourself doing it because you note it down. You record it and that builds confidence and it helps change the story of your day because you don't just end up in this like in this bottleneck of tasks where you feel so paralysed by uh, choice that you can't do any of them. Try it once this podcast is done. You know, grab a piece of paper. I, I really recommend if you can write longhand, do it. Making it will take you five minutes max. Uh, even if they, even if you're not feeling overwhelmed, just test it. It's not complicated, and I think you'd be surprised how much it helps. Thing four: read stuff you hate. So you may have heard writers, agents, and editors, especially agents and editors. I think actually banging on about how the most important thing a writer can do is read, read, read. And every time I hear that, I do feel a bit resentful when I hear them read, read, read. I, it feels like one. It feels like homework. It, it, it's like. Come on, you naughty stamp, scamp. Back you go. 
and 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 these people aren't exactly impartial that are saying it right they're going what do i recommend consume more of the product my industry makes and which i rely upon for my income it it just feels a little bit like a butcher claiming the best way to get into her profession is eating lots of sausages so here's the thing reading a crap load of books is on its own insufficient anyway i i know loads of people i've encountered loads of people who read all the time and are not good writers some of those have never tried to be writers but just reading doesn't make you good at writing in itself to really learn your in fact because that is true of a lot of agents and editors who read loads and read all the time and are not good writers to really learn your way around the range of a language all the styles and modes available to you as a writer all the moves you can just blatantly steal and graft onto your own graft onto your own story you need to learn to read widely now that doesn't necessarily mean reading deeply you probably don't have the time unless you're some kind of unless a kind of eccentric philanthropist has died and left you his estate you probably have like shit to do right but if you really want to level up as a writer, if you want to experience a step change in your skills and your ability for getting words on the page that do more or less what you are hoping for, something in the region of what you're aiming for, I think you need to become the sort of person who, upon an entering a new house, immediately takes a book down from the shelves and starts nosing through it. You know, be a nosy git, you know, dip into novels for a page, a paragraph. You can, you know, you can go on Amazon and, and, and use the look inside feature. Read the first pages of the top 10 best-selling novels this week. That'll take what? That might take you 20 minutes, right? And I'm not saying you should be reading them so you can concoct a formula slavishly replicating an aggregation of their styles. You know, take, take those weird you know, hardbacks off the shelves in English pubs. Read pulp horror, read romance. When was the last time you read three pages of an airport thriller, a crime novel? How does the author hook the reader in those cases? Read the classics. And I know, look, I've got problems with the established Western canon as much as, as you have. So, you know, by all means, uh, go further afield. And I'm not saying read all of them. You don't have to even finish one, but, a, but sample a plate, uh, you know, sample a page of Flaubert. Uh, dip into a, a paragraph of Wolf. Read translations of countries' national epics. You know, if you go to Project Gutenberg online, you can get thousands of like out of copyright novels for free. And it's not because you ought to read them. You know, it's not a contest. You're not keeping up with uh, a load of Oxbridge grads who have, uh, you know, read the entire canon. But I think sampling lots of different styles some you love and and loads that you are either indifferent to or you fucking hate it's going to transform you as a writer and and you need that randomness i think like so much creativity um sparks off randomness and chance and making sparks between two unrelated things i think that willingness to surprise your brain you know it's like you know how you feel when you're in a new country or a new area and how much more alive the street seems as you notice new things you've never seen before i think if you're constantly reading say big fantasy series by the same few novelists then look it's wonderful you found a niche you enjoy but you are limiting yourself and this isn't about volume either it's about nibbling a hundred different tiny little entrees across a huge buffet of fiction but look all of that sounds overwhelming and way too broad i'm like saying create a new lifestyle and habit and it's just like yeah i mean yeah okay tim i will try and you're not going to do it are you because it's too much Uh, so let's bring it back to a specific actionable challenge for you that you can try once you finish listening to this podcast so today 
preferably not too long after you've listened you finished listening to this go online and pick a genre you haven't read before or at least one you haven't read in years then go on to amazon or google books and read the first few pages of a novel in that category you know like if you haven't read much romance recently go and read some contemporary romance or some historical romance you know go and have a look it's crazy to me how many people who consider themselves writers how many people who fucking teach creative writing even and and they've never read more than a few pages of science fiction or they haven't read fantasy in 20 years and they think that they're qualified to teach creative writing if you haven't if you are not familiar at least with some of the moves of that genre you're not and they think they know because they watched a movie watching a rom-com is not the same as reading a romance novel watching a period drama isn't the same as reading george Eliot. Look and and see how some of these writers handle dialogues or dialogue or first lines or scene changes. How do they open their book? How do they close it? How do they handle description or introducing a character? What moves that they use work well for you? And what can you steal? And what stuff do you not like? Because like sometimes you'll read a couple of pages and you'll think this is fucking dog shit. Which I'll tell you what you know because obviously. I, None of these things that I'm recommending are things that I don't do myself. And I was thinking about it. It's actually quite heartening. I was doing it. I was looking through Amazon. I was reading some like bestsellers and opening pages. And I was like thinking, actually, look, there are people out there making tens of thousands of pounds. And, and they're fucking worse writers than me. They are. There's no doubt in my mind that they are not as good writers as me. Now, sure, I think it's worth doing some investigation to figure out what actually are the things that are working here, what are readers responding to and attending to, because different genres can have different aims and that's legitimate and there's no particular reason why, you know, you can go, oh, well, the characters are very two-dimensional. Well, not all fiction is looking to create complete psychological verisimilitude. They want characters who are archetypes because the pleasure is more in the movements and machinations of the plot. So it's important that you're not being unfair and going, well, this isn't very funny. Well, it's not a comedy, so that's fine, right? You, But it's also fine to read it and go, actually, this is quite shit. You may very well be right in your criticisms, which is a great thing to know next time you're feeling excessively self-critical when you're sat at the blank page. You know, it takes a lot of the heat out to know, you know what? There are a lot of people out there who are fucking shit writers who didn't let them, didn't let it stop them and have got published and more power to them. Why not? Thing five, tidy up. Again, this might sound silly or slightly, uh, slightly, uh, critical but I, I i have loads of uh ideas or tiny breakthroughs when I'm, I'm doing some mundane piece of housework like dusting my office or vacuuming the stairs tidying gets a bad rap as the province of scoundrels and procrastinators a way of dodging writing oh i'm just gonna tidy my desk and and it can be sure I'd recommend doing a 10-minute free write before you hop into clearing all the rubbish of your floor or putting your clothes on to wash or whatever. And I'd recommend setting a timer for the chores too, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever. So you're giving yourself a discrete controlled block of downtime where you're getting something done, you're improving your writing environment and you're giving your mind time to wander and make connections. Excessive clutter can be stressful in ways you don't realise until you tidy. I don't know if you've ever done that. Like had a big tidy up and then you look at your house and you go oh, and you just feel better i'm not advocating obsessive cleanliness as anyone who's seen inside my office would know that would be incredibly 
and profoundly hypocritical, but you can easily lose 20 minutes on Facebook or YouTube doing nothing in particular, farting about in a way that just makes you feel listless and crappy afterwards. Why not put that time to good use? Personally, I've found doing this occasionally when I remember so helpful. Anytime I'm feeling overwhelmed or stressed out because a scene doesn't seem to be working, 10 minutes timed housework. Recognise the tension, give some of that arousal the time to burn out and do something productive in the meantime. Because normally you're lowering your discomfort, you feel that anxiety you feel when you get to the page and you kind of know it's not really where you want it to be you can see the gap between a published novel and what you're writing I bet a lot of the time what I've done again and again is I've lowered that comfort through that lowered that discomfort through social media and tv and just numbing myself out feeling better by feeling less which lowers your confidence further it makes you feel shitter it makes you feel weaker it makes you feel like you've flinched away 10 or 20 minutes housework is just it's just another easy win It puts you back in control, it changes the tone of the day, and you leave something better than when you found it. Thing six, move. Lately, I've been finding myself dozing off at the laptop when I try to write. Now, it's partly to do with sleep deprivation, partly to do with the muggy atmosphere at the moment but but I knew I wasn't I knew I wasn't falling asleep while, say, playing video games or driving, so there had to be something else going on. I think writing, when you're really absorbed in it can be a semi-hypnotic state. And sometimes that relaxed focus can just glissade into torpor and and then I'm snoring at my desk. So you may have heard of the Pomodoro technique. If not, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. But it's basically just another strategy for managing your attention and focus on a task. So you set a timer for 25 minutes. It's called Pomodoro technique because that's Italian for tomato. And uh, I think originally it was done with a tomato timer. But you can do it with a kitchen timer or an app on your phone. But you set it for 25 minutes. And while it's going, you work with absolute concentration. No checking your phone, no checking social media, no getting up for a snack or going for a wee until the timer rings. And then you take a timed five minute break. Then 25 minutes again, five minute break until you hit like four cycles of that. And on the fourth, you take like a longer 20 minute break or something. And that's the rough shape of it. That's the Pomodoro technique. Now, I found it really useful. It certainly isn't a miracle cure. Sometimes it can even be a bit distressing how quickly that 25 minute goes and how little you get done in it. But it can be a good interim measure if you're really struggling to get down and write. It helps break away some of the anxiety. It focuses you on time rather than quality. And it it can be a nice distractor, another self-interruption technique. What I would say, though, whether you use that technique or not, uh, when you're writing, I'd suggest setting an alarm that goes off every 20, every 20 minutes, every half an hour. And now whether you concentrate through that time or not is up to you. But when it goes off, get up out of your seat and move around. Do some stretches, roll your shoulders back 30 times, then forward 30 times, do a, a dozen laps up and down the stairs. Do be careful not to stack it while running on the stairs. Be very, very careful uh, do a set of star jumps or burpees. You could learn a couple of simple yoga moves or bits of qigong or maybe a breathing exercises while you that you can do standing up. You might even get, you know, like a bar that you can hook over your door to do chin-ups or, or um, pull-ups. I'm, I'm not asking you to take any of this on faith. You know, try it for an hour of writing, 60 minutes writing with two breaks where you do some light, moderate or even intense movement. See how it feels. You might consider wearing light breathable clothes or sweatpants while you... Right, so that in your breaks you can move about without feeling all gross afterwards. Obviously, depending on your mobility and your physical restrictions, there may be some different versions of this that are appropriate to you. But the point is to make a clear interruption in your writing process, get your heart pumping and get more oxygen moving through your system and into your brain and wake yourself up. 
also for me it like takes me out of my head and into my body for a bit which is useful for an anxious overthinky heady writer it helps me with balance and i've found it very useful thing seven tempt yourself if you're anything like me the very presence of an open packet of biscuits within the house is an incitement to eat biscuits. It exerts a kind of erotic gravity beckoning, aching to be consumed. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with eating biscuits. But I experience those cravings far less when there isn't a packet of chocolate hobnobs downstairs. And, and when I do, I, I can't act on them without a fairly involved multi-stage series of behaviours to get me out the door to the shop and back. Now, people often talk about this idea of habit architecture, structuring your environment to limit temptations so you don't have to rely on your stores of willpower. And I, the problem with that is it's, it can feel a bit draconian, right? Stripping your house of all sorts of treats and things that bring you small amounts of relief and joy. It, it certainly doesn't get you pumped to make those changes. Strip all the exciting rewards out of your home. Oh, yes, please. So one thing I, I have been thinking about is flipping it on its head. Can you use habit architecture to tempt yourself into writing more? Recently, I noticed I was doing all these extra little 10-minute sessions writing in long form. I've got this lovely big black A4 hardback journal with a ribbon marker in it and completely by accident I'd left it by my bedside with a nice fine line black pen inside. I just happened to be writing and I put it down and every time I came to bed there it would be lying there ready to go and, and it was simplicity itself just to pick it up set a timer on my phone and go at it for 10 minutes and I'd do one session two sessions I, I'd run over time keep scribbling stuff down at no point was I consciously having to g myself up to do a bit of writing you know I wasn't going come on you lazy git get some writing done it was just there and the pen was inside as a bookmark for the next blank page and I could just I'd just take it and I'd slide it out and I could go from the small impulse, ooh, should I write, to writing within 60 seconds. And and I think that is just an easy way. Like, like how many writing temptations are there around your house? Where do you write? What do you write in or on? Does writing for you require going into a separate room you wouldn't otherwise be in? Does it require waiting for a laptop to boot up and then opening a Word file? If you're in the kitchen waiting for your toast to pop up, what is the sequence of actions you'd have to go through if you wanted to spend 90 seconds writing? Because this is the thing where you just don't understand how many restrictions you've built into your life that make it harder for you to write. Buy a bunch of cheap notebooks and pens. Leave them everywhere around your house. You know, get one small enough to fit in your coat pocket or handbag and, and blue tack a pen to it. Or, you know, put a pe make sure you've always got a pen slotted into your pocket. Buy one in, and put it in the bathroom. Have one on your bedside table with a pen in easy reach. You keep your phone at arm's length when you go to sleep, right? I bet you don't sleep. I bet a lot of you listening, right, don't sleep with your phone. Uh, 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 throughout the day are probably are rarely more than an arm's length away from your phone, even when it's charging, right? And that's why it's so natural, so automatic, so easy to pick it up the moment you wake up and then you start checking it, right? And I'm not saying that that's a problem or I'm not trying to pathologize phone use, but you can have that relationship with creativity. This, this isn't some smartphones are destroying millennials rant you know keep your smartphone go on social media as much as you like it's up to you but if you want to write i ask you how many steps are between you and writing right now how easy do you make it 
for yourself to open a new page and start writing? How many places in your daily environment have a notebook and pen within arm's length? rig your habitat that's what i'm saying to you and it's a piece of piss to do just try it you know find a bunch of crappy notebooks or order some and and start now you don't have to go on some expensive retreat you don't have to commit to some spiritual regimen of self-discovery you 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 can write total nonsense in those stolen moments Uh, i hear so many people who are trying to give writing advice saying make your writing space sacred and you know have a little incense burner and and make it a part of the house that's always clean that you can go to and it's a little refuge that you can go and write and I don't have a problem with that except when you rely upon it and it's the only way that you can write because it stops you writing it's like in the same way that you know there's no problem with having elaborate kinks but if that's the only way you can get off and you can't just enjoy something simple then the issue is that you can start convincing yourself that you can't enjoy some simple th- pleasures as well. I'm not trying to kink shame anyone. I'm just saying, like, if you if it's the only thing, if you start telling yourself it's the only thing you can enjoy, you close yourself off to other pleasures and you get less of that thing, right? It's You get less of that pleasure. And this is the same thing with writing, I think. I really do. Uh, that you... You, you know, your subjective perception of how much time you have in a week, how much control you have in your life, your satisfaction with your writing and your actual writing skill through training, all of those things will increase if you create opportunities to stumble across writing. It's worked for me. And, you know, what are the chances that it might work a little bit for you too? Okay, my friend, that's it for today. I love hearing from you. So if you want to get in touch, my website's timclairpoet.co.uk or you can follow me on at timclairpoet on Twitter. Please subscribe to the podcast and share. I love you dearly. You have no idea what joy there is in store for you. Take care. Try out some of this shit. You know, like there'll be notes in the show notes. Go and have a look to remind yourself what we talked about and, and just give it a go i've been having a rough week my friends but it's lovely to check in with you and i just want the best for you in your writing and in your life i know you can just do a couple of these things and i know it's going to make a difference just road test them will you do that for me i'm pushing you because i care about you okay good yeah i love you too see you back here soon